0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. I'm going to read from God's Word in the 11th chapter of Isaiah. Let's pray. Great God Eternal, show us now that though all things may be shadows, you and you alone are substance. Great God, assure us now by the preaching of your word that though all things are shifting sand around us, you are the anchor that holds. Teach us now by the light of your word that though all things are ignorance, you and you alone are wisdom. And convict us, mighty Spirit of God, not so much about all the circumstances around us, but convict us about the character of Christ to be formed in us. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. There shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What an awesome Old Testament expression. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them the cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox the nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra And the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For this earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious and in that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather all the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Sometimes you go through weeks or months in a row and you never really come up for oxygen. You're just working, you're making food, you're cleaning up from making food, you're getting things done and you just sort of have to clonk through life. But in God's goodness, sometimes you get to have one of those days or one of those little stretches of days where things are good. And so many light, joyous things are happening that have you ever done this? Have you done this lately? Whatever's going on around you, you stop, you just take a breath, and you look around and you think, it is so good to be here in this place With these people. I had a rare privilege of having that kind of moment this week. Amy and I were able to get together with some dear friends of ours uh, of, I don't know, four or five couples, and we were all in each other's weddings 30 years ago. And we just got together and uh, there's nothing like old friends. And we stayed up way too late talking about what idiots we were when we were 19 years old and all the stupid stuff we did that we should have been arrested for or at least institutionalized for. And, <laughs> and, uh, but we didn't just stay up so late laughing together. Uh, we stayed up late praying and lamenting and crying about the hard times that we have faced and are still facing. This is the way life is. The reality is that God is love and he made us for relationship and sometimes the relationship is so sweet that you just get to lean back for a minute and take a breath and think, oh God, it is so good to be here. And at the same time, it's equally true. Life is so hard. And the people you love the most, they seem to suffer the most and you just lament at the loss and the pain and the injustice and the sorrow of it all. What do we do with that? Christians should not pretend that life is all a bed of roses. But Christians should also not walk around shaking their fist heaven. What do we do with that? I suppose atheism or materialism, when I talk about atheism or sort of a scientific materialism that all there is is matter, I'm I'm talking about something that I've never really believed (laughs) so I don't know it from the inside but I try to be honest with what they would say. Uh, an atheistic sort of scientific materialism that all there is is dirt and atoms and molecules would have to say that we are just chemical compounds. We're basically just sacks of skin filled mostly with water and the feelings of love and affection that we have for each other, they all have biological roots and the feelings of fear or sorrow, what they really are, at the bottom of it is just chemical synapses firing along. But you know what amazes me is that this Bible, this, uh, wink, wink, this terrible handmaid's tale, retrograde, anti-progress, anti-human, rights-destroying Bible, declares that we were created by a God who is love for the purpose of love and that we were made for relationships with God and with one another and that we were given dominion over the earth and God said, you know, go go out and, and plant the best garden that you can. Go out and if if soccer's your thing, become the best at soccer that you can become. He created us with this dominion and this aspiration to expand and that's a a wonderful gift from God. That is human nature in the Bible. So I would just ask again, concretely and unblinkingly and unfeignedly, which really is retrograde and rights-destroying and anti-human? this story or the story that we're just sacks filled mostly with water and our emotions are just chemical synapses? All of the sad and sorrowful longings that we have for our dear friends who suffer, are those just a a, a fiction of of, uh, evolutionary biological fear? Or do all of our longings that Will this suffering end and will the wrong things be made right? Are those longings indicative of the fact that God made a world where the lion dwelled with the lamb and when he comes back, the lion will dwell with the lamb? Which is it? Which is it? I read my share of... uh, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and Karl Marx in uh, college. I have not reread them since. That once was enough. <laughs> but I'm aware of the, 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 the a common canard that, that religious hopes, the hope that Jesus is coming back, is, uh, is an opiate. What they are right about is that life here is hard Life here is hard. You really could picture the world as a concrete prison. I mean, and the world is great. And I just spent these days like next to the ocean with these dear friends that, that knew us 30 years ago before we knew anything about anything. And life is great, but life is also hard. And you really can't picture life as a sort of a, uh, we're in this sort of concrete prison and, and uh, there's injustice all around and there's reason to lament all around. And so what is it? These hopes about Jesus coming back are some sort, of, some sort of opiate, some sort of opioid-induced high to just distract us from how hard life is in the prison. Or there's another explanation. That is, Even though life is hard and people we love die and there's sorrow all around and life really is in some ways down here like being in a concrete prison, there is a window. And we get to see a better world. And according to this book, that window, we see that window in Isaiah 11. According to this book, that window is neither an opiate nor a distracting fantasy. But what we see through that window is the reality that God designed. And temporarily, because not he, but we, temporarily, because not he, but we messed the whole thing up, life is like a concrete prison. But there's a window and what's through that window is no fantasy. That is reality and that's the world that God made in Eden and that's the world that when the Son of God puts his feet on this planet, he will remake again. That's what Isaiah 11 is about. All of the current states of of joy and love, those moments in life when we just lean back and look around and think, I am so blessed to be able to be here with these people. Those moments are, are, are not a, uh, a distraction or a fantasy of the way God designed it, but those are a part of this promise that we find in Isaiah 11. And so as we look together at Isaiah 11, this is a text that first we say there's a biblical interpretation of what this man Isaiah was saying to the people of Judah in his own day about Assyria and ultimately about Babylon. That's interpretation in historical context. But in a passage like Isaiah 11 that is picked up and quoted in the New Testament about what's gonna happen in the second coming of Christ, we have to take that interpretation and the original historical meaning and then we expand it Through biblical theology and the progress of revelation and a little bit of the systematics of putting together what does the Bible say about the future here and here and here and we can put that all together with or without a color chart and then we can kind of figure out what's the future that God is promising. But I want you to remember the issue is, is this future that God is promising and opioid-induced fantasy just to give us some relief in the prison or is it really a window into the reality? So in Isaiah 11, we're again in the mountain ranges where Isaiah is uh, talking about what's happening. And yet there's another mountain a thousand years later or 4,000 years later. And from his perspective, he's talking about what's happening on the mountain he's standing on. And we're looking ahead. We can't see how much distance is between that first mountain and the second. So we've seen already in Isaiah 9, in Isaiah 2, these prophecies about the first coming of Christ and these prophecies about the second coming of Christ. That's the mountain that that's, looks like it's just a few inches away and then another mountain behind that, but really there was 2,000 years and 2,000 plus more years before his second coming. In Isaiah's day, Assyria was being sent by God to judge Judah and Israel. And he says in chapter 10, a remnant survives. He says again in chapter 11, a remnant survives. So in in the original day, Assyria was coming, but yet a remnant would survive. That's historical to Isaiah's time. And in the Jesus' second coming, so even skipping past that first mountain range of his first coming, in Jesus' second coming, it says in Isaiah 11, God will again for another time bring in the remnant from from wherever they are. Chapter 10 describes the devastation of Assyria invading. And Assyria didn't get it all done. Babylon had to take over and shut the whole thing down in 586. But what he says in Isaiah 10 is it's all chopped down. Assyria or perhaps it's Babylon in in the great degradation. All the trees are chopped down. There's this, the, the kings and the armies just mow everything down. There are no trees left. And then in Isaiah 11, it says, even on that mown down tree, there's a little shoot of the little green of spring that grows into a branch that grows into a staff being watered by the dew of the Spirit of God from heaven and that staff is like a rod of iron that makes all the wrong things right and brings justice to the world. And so we see in verse one, it says, there shall come a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Why does it say the stump of Jesse? The stump of Jesse means David. David. Jesse being David's father. This is hearkening back and you can turn there if you are able to get there as fast as I am. 2 Samuel chapter 7 because this is talking about the Davidic covenant. We're at those mountain ranges again. There's King David. Then there's a King Jesus and the kingdom he brings in his first coming, but then there's still the King Jesus and the kingdom that he shall bring in his second coming and all those mountains are lined up together. We see the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and it is eternal and it is good. I'm picking it up in 2 Samuel 7 verse eight. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel and I have been with you wherever you went and I've cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel I will give you rest from your enemies moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and will establish the throne of Israel and his kingdom forever." I will be to him as a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the Davidic covenant. We see it fulfilled in its first iteration in the reign of David and then Solomon, his son who committed iniquity, but God still sustained the kingdom. We saw the kingdom divided and yet we'll see that it's beyond that to a a prophecy about Jesus and the kingdom he will establish. If you go back to verse 2 of Isaiah 11, I just love what it says about the spirit of the Lord. Let me show you this with those mountain peaks again, what it's teaching about the spirit of the Lord. This is a a little snapshot of the progress of revelation and biblical theology through careful interpretation. Verse two, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What is that referring to? Let me show you briefly, but convincingly, hopefully, that I can. This is actually talking about four mountain ranges of the fullness of the Spirit of God. First, the uh, original meaning, which is that the stump of Jesse, that is David, will be filled with the Spirit. In 2 Samuel 7, he actually says, as he re- remember he said, as I removed my spirit from Saul, I will not remove my spirit from you. This was a a statement of how the Spirit of God dwelled everlastingly on the house of David. So the first meaning is that when David became king, and you can see it literally in 1 Samuel 16, the sort of bony hand of the prophet Samuel and the the horn made out of the horn of an animal that poured oil on the top of David's head, significantly when David was the smallest of the brothers. There's a motif of of a child in this chapter, when we meet the Messiah in chapter 9, he's a child. When we meet the, the uh, when, we, when we see that, that the serpent is conquered in here, in Isaiah 11, it says a little, a little nursing baby won't have to fear the serpent. But the first original meeting is that when David became king, he was anointed with oil and the spirit of God descended upon him. This was the first iteration, the the sort of early echo ahead of time of what would happen secondly in Christ's first coming. Because in Christ's first coming, he's quiet. We see a little bit about in Luke 2 where they left him in the temple and about what it was like for him growing up. But the first public declaration of Jesus is at that wonderful place. I've been there. I hope you can go there one day. Well, I should say it like this. I hope you can go to the River Jordan one day while you're still you right here, like in this life, but I guarantee you you'll get to go there when Jesus comes back. But anyway, uh, the first public declaration of Jesus' ministry is at the banks of the Jordan, where John the Baptist looks at Jesus asking for baptism and says, well, I'm not worthy to take off your sandals. Why don't you baptize me? He says, no, this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And when he went down in the water and when he came back up, this, what would it have been like to hear the this sort of glow in the voice of a, of a righteously proud father who says, this is my beloved Son, in Him I am so well pleased. And from the Father to the Son, we have the Spirit descending as a dove in fullness while the the sunshine glistened off the waters of the Jordan. But that's only the second mountain range. The third mountain range is actually us. Because remember, Jesus, when he left, he said to his disciples, and that includes us, this, I, have, I have the fullness of the Spirit. And the reason I have to go to my Father, it's almost like, like, I don't know, what do you call that thing when crazy, insane men go ice fishing, and they have to like make a hole in the ice? Like, man, you gotta find another church if you think that's a good way to get your food. I get, I get my fish from the Culver's drive-thru. But anyway, the, like whatever that thing is, they make a hole in the ice. Jesus is, is Jesus is saying to his disciples, I have, I, I have the fullness of the spirit. And now that, I've been, now that I've come out of the grave, this is right before he left, he said, now, now I have to ascend to my father. And the angels reiterated in Acts 1, I, Jesus has to go to heaven so he can, as it were, bore a hole in heaven's floor and he can pour out upon you and upon you and upon you and upon you that very same spirit which filled him. We talked about that last week in Isaiah 5.18. There's no way on God's green earth I could have preached a message about how women ought to be godly wives and how husbands ought to be godly husbands without that, without that Ephesians 5.18, the fullness of the Spirit. That's game, set, match. But that's only the third iteration. I think here, the implied at least, or actually it's not implied, it's stated, there's a fourth, and that is The fullness of the Spirit of God indwelling Jesus, the resurrected perfect man, when he returns to reign on David's throne. And you you get the sense of the kind of ruler that he shall be. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. These are attributed to the, the... to speak reverently, not to the raw Jesusness of him, but to the fullness of the Spirit within him. The Trinity works together. And the Spirit will be so, the Spirit will be so uh, radiating and exuding out of Jesus that all of the cases of justice will be perfectly adjudicated by Jesus. But beyond that, Even the animal kingdom, which isn't guilty of injustice in the same way that we are. But see, first he says, all of these human cases of injustice and poverty and injustice and all that, that will be righted by the the spirit inside of Jesus. But then he says, even the wolves and the lions and the, the poisonous adder snake, Will the the radiating presence of this spirit of peace, this spirit of joy, this spirit of life will so radiate from Jesus that the whole world will be filled with it? What a promise! What a promise, man! To read verses three and four and five, huh? To read verses three and four and five with the current leaders that we have in the state of Wisconsin and the current leaders that we have in the, on the federal level in the United States of America and to read verses 3 and 4 and 5 and to contrast, I could preach a message out of 3, 4, and 5 and title it, The Leaders We Need, and it would not be a description of our current leaders, I promise you that. This is the kind of leader that we need. The kind of leader who will never be deceived by appearances. The kind of leader who will so delight in the fear of the Lord that he will never do something to retain his power or do something to to alleviate some pressure from a particular base that he needs more votes from. We are deceived by appearances. We're deceived by our own hearts, but Jesus is never deceived. Deceived. Jesus will not rule as men rule. He will rule completely differently. Isaiah chapter two, verse four says, he shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither will we learn war anymore. Jesus does not rule like earthly leaders rule. He came out and says this in Mark chapter 10. He said, in my kingdom... We don't lead like the kingdoms of the world. In the kingdoms of the world, when you are great, many people serve you. Jesus says, In my kingdom, when you are great, this comes because, Mark 10 45, because you serve many. And ultimately, he says, The way that I served you was by shedding my blood for you. So just hear this, church, about whatever with political leadership. It is a danger that you will be too loyal to an earthly leader you are never in danger of being too loyal to Jesus. That'll never happen. And here, this church, it is a danger that you can be too trusting of earthly leadership and that because you like a guy or you like a gal, you can make excuses for the bad things that they do. That's very common. But church, you can never do that with Jesus for there is perfect justice and perfect righteousness in his leadership. And church, hear this, it is not only possible but inevitable that you can be frustrated with the failures of earthly leaders. That will be true in your relationship with your current senior pastor and other church leaders and certainly will be true with leaders at the state and federal level. But church, you can never be frustrated with the leadership of Jesus. Oh, you can feel frustrated with the leadership of Jesus, but that's your problem, not his. We need this. We need this vision of the leader who we need. We need this prophetic vision from Isaiah because the people who currently rule the world and the forces which are currently destroying the world, the day is coming when he will slay them with the rod of iron that comes out of his mouth. If I'd ask you to turn another place from Isaiah 11, I'd ask you to turn to Psalm 2. This is uh, distinctly related to Isaiah 11. We are either, according to atheistic materialism that calls the Bible retrograde and inhuman, we're either a sack of skin filled mostly with water and our hopes and aspirations and fears or just biochemical impulses or there's a bigger story and Psalm 2 tells us the bigger story. I actually think Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 are together because Psalm 1 begins with blessed is the perfectly righteous man. Now it warns against the wicked, but the emphasis of Psalm 1 is the perfect righteous man. Psalm 1, this is the perfect righteous man. Psalm 2 is the response of the world to the perfect righteous man. And it ain't the right response. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is kindled, quickly kindled. And blessed are all those who take refuge in him. What happened... When the perfect man prophesied in Psalm 1 appeared on the scene of the earth is that instead of welcoming him and following him, this world hated him and murdered him. Herod tried to do it when he was a little baby in Mary's arms. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious rulers, they were all stacked against him. Nipping at his heels like so many bloodhounds. Psalm 2 is a Christological interpretation of world history. It is a Christological explanation of why the kings of the earth do the things that they do. So back to those mountain ranges, Psalm 2 was being played out in Isaiah's literal day with Assyria and Babylon. And then Psalm 2 was played out in the first coming of Jesus Christ, in the day of Herod, in the day of Nero. Psalm 2 is played out in our own day. I, I can't remember a time recently when I have been as horrified by the barbaric and ungodly and murderous things that have been said by a White House as I have been in the last two weeks and this issue of abortion, Roe v. Wade. Absolutely horrific statement from our current slate of leaders. But this is not the case today for us as if we're the first ones to deal with that. It was Isaiah's day, it was Jesus' day, it was the New Testament's day. In fact, the church is born in Acts chapter two. It says that they devoted themselves to prayer. But really the first full description of the church's prayer meeting is in Acts chapter four. And in the church's prayer meeting in Acts four, they quote from Psalm two in their first prayers because this is what's happening in Acts four. Hello, tell me how out of step and retrograde and not relevant the Bible is because this is what happens in Acts chapter four. The governmental powers are raging against what is righteous. And they are trying to shut the church down. And so the church prays out loud and they pray Psalm chapter two in their own day. This is is precisely what the church has always needed. A church that believes Isaiah 11, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Revelation 20 is a church that believes no government On the local level, on the federal level, on the international level, no government is sovereign over the church. That sovereignty belongs to Jesus Christ. And so we honor him and we worship him and we obey him. Let men and governors and Nero's and their tyrannical swords do their worst. We shall not yield to any king but Jesus and so from 2nd Samuel 7 from Psalm 2 if you go back to Isaiah 11 the fullness of the spirit in his in his kingly administration when he comes again will be so full that even the animal kingdom can't resist it maybe the best verse in Isaiah 11 and they're all winners is the end of verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Reason I like that verse is because you could put a muzzle on a pit bull and say he's not going to bite anyone. That's not what this verse is saying. This verse says, the biting, the sinning, blood drawing. The reason that it stops is not an external muzzle. It is an internal knowledge by which the very person is transformed. And this is peace on earth. Verse 6, the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the little child leading them, the lion, verse 7, eating straw like the ox. This is prophesying the day when the curse, Genesis 3, will be rolled back. This is prophesying the day that Paul wrote about in Romans 8 when. He says in that great chapter, the, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. For the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption. That's the reversal of the curse. For we know, he says in Romans 8, that the whole creation has been groaning together until now. Oh, can you hear it? I can hear creation groaning in the words of Isaiah 11. I can hear those little lambs bleating for it. If we go up to Minnesota, we could hear those, those wolves on the mountainsides, on the hillsides, howling for it. Creation is groaning for the coming of her king. Is that a fantasy to distract us from our current prison or is that groaning the window into a reality which is coming? In that day, death itself will lose its sting because the serpent will be subdued and the conditions will return to those of Eden. From Isaiah 11, the last cross reference I'd ask you to go to is Revelation 20. And Revelation 20 speaks of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 in the way that I interpret it is an an exact fulfillment of Isaiah 11, of 2 Samuel 7, of more references coming, Hosea 3, of Joel 3 verses 9 to the end of the chapter, of Micah 4, of Zephaniah 3 verses 14 to 20, of Zechariah chapter 14, the whole chapter. It says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands and they came to life and reigned with Christ for one thousand years the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended this is the first resurrection blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then verse 7 says when the thousand years are ended and it describes what happens after the millennium in this sort of final cleanup operation of Gog and Magog and then the judgment of the great white throne. The thing to say interpretively about Revelation 20 is that Revelation is a challenging book to interpret and there's symbolic language throughout Revelation and sometimes numbers are symbolic in Revelation. But I don't take the thousand year reign of Jesus here to be symbolic. The alternate interpretation would be that somehow all those promises of of a perfect king reigning from David, those are somehow spiritualized to the church and they have no literal fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. I take it as that those promises will be as literally fulfilled as his first coming was. It's not sort of transferred to the church, but that Jesus will reign from the throne of David, from the city of Jerusalem. And the amazing thing about that is that in the millennium, I don't, I don't say amazing lightly, the amazing thing about that is that in the millennium, still being on this planet, we will still get to do the things we love to do, but we'll get to do them for Jesus, and we'll get to do them without hurting anybody. Oh, I don't know what your thing is. If your thing is that you love jazz, we, we will enjoy jazz to the glory of Jesus. Whatever it is for you, we get to do that for him. Because Jesus made the earth, he watched us ruin the earth, He came the first time to save us from that ruination and he will come again and the crowning glory will be all this earth and all that it is. We get to bring its greatest treasures right to Jesus and say, these are for you. These are for you. And church, you know what this means. You know what eschatology means. Even if And I'm okay with this, even if your exact order of end times events is not the exact same order as mine. Even if that's the case, you and I both know what eschatology means for us. It means a lot of things, but let me just give you two. It means that because Jesus is coming back, and it says in Revelation, blessed are those who endure to the end what it means is the reason you are a covenant member of this church is so that you can help other covenant members of this church endure till the end because not everybody gonna not everybody's gonna and you need to come here not thinking of yourself, but you need to come here thinking of others. And you need to come here in such a way that if someone says or does something annoying to you, you can overlook that because you believe hell is real and people in the church need to endure in the faith. We have got to help each other endure to the end. It, it ought to be so far behind us to bicker with each other about secondary things Preachers always say this. I ran out of time. In the bulletin it says that we would go to Romans 15. I didn't go there because I ran out of time. But in Romans 15, <laughs> here I am again going over. In Romans 15, he, this is, he, they're like arguing about should we be vegetarian or should we eat um, the meat that was sacrificed to idols? For us, it's, you know, should we boycott Disney? Um, is homeschool or classical education the only righteous way to train your kids? Whatever those secondary issues are. He actually applies Isaiah 11 in Romans 15 by saying, if Jesus is coming back and everyone in the whole world is gonna rally around him, don't separate on secondary things. Unite on Jesus. But anyway, the point is we gotta endure with one another. Help each other endure. And the second thing that eschatology means is mission and evangelism. He is coming. And everyone will face him. And those who have not bowed the knee to Jesus will suffer for that unrepentant, recalcitrant unrighteousness that they wore proudly like a cloak. They will suffer for that, not for a thousand years, but forever. And we have a way that they can escape. So we give, so we pray, so we courageously speak the message of the gospel, a commitment to help each other endure to the end and a commitment to mission and evangelism. Because beloved church, this, this is reality. This is the window into the reality, which is yet to come. Let us pray. Lord Jesus seeing this seeing the future ahead of time help us to live this day and whatever number of days you have left for us with this in view oh help us to know the world to which we belong help us to know the kingdom to which we belong May we kiss the Son, bow before His Lordship, and may we give of self, of money, of time, of passion and love, that all may know Jesus in the fullness of His saving grace. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.